What was surprising was to realize that many of my peers and those in my networks in their adult life had never been asked to do anything in politics other than donate to a candidate or knock on a door. They'd not been asked to use their mind. They'd not been asked to use their strategic skills, their skills in innovation or as an entrepreneur. So we started with the premise that there was actually strangely almost no competition <laughs> for getting people genuinely deeply involved in strategically looking at what was going on in our politics and devising solutions. That's Daniela Boulouers, the founder and CEO of the Leadership Now Project. I'm your host, Patrick McGinnis, and this is FOMO Sapiens, part of the HBR Presents Network. My name is Patrick McGinnis, and I'm the guy who invented the term FOMO. That's short for fear of missing out. Today, FOMO is an epidemic, and it's changing us so much that it sort of feels like we're evolving into a new species. But FOMO doesn't have to take over your life. You can find the power to choose what you actually want and the courage to miss out on the rest. I'll show you how right here on FOMO Sapiens. FOMO. FOMO. Welcome to FOMO Sapiens, the show where I interview people who are changing the world and ask them how they choose from among the many opportunities and options in their busy lives. I recently came across a quote that I thought was quite relevant for the current state of the world. It says, One of the penalties for refusing to participate in politics is that you end up being governed by your inferiors. If you're frustrated by the state of politics in your country, you may very well relate with that sentiment. But here's the thing. Those are the words of Plato, written way back in 380 BC. The point here is that the need for ordinary citizens to step up and make the system work better is just as fresh today as it was over 2,000 years ago. My guest today is doing exactly that. Daniela Ballou Ayers is the founder and CEO of the Leadership Now Project, an organization of business professionals committed to renewing American democracy. She has also been a founder and partner at Dahlberg and served as a senior advisor for the Department of State, where she focused on modernizing the U.S. government's approach to frontier markets by boosting private capital and infrastructure investments. Daniela holds an MBA from Harvard Business School, an MPA from Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, and a BS in Operations, Research, and Industrial Engineering from Cornell University. And full disclosure, I'm a member of Leadership Now, and I wanted to have Daniela on the show because I believe that all of us must work together, regardless of ideology, to innovate in government in the same way that we innovate in the private sector. So this is going to be a nonpartisan discussion about how to reform and improve the institutions of government. I hope you enjoy it. Daniela Ballou Ayers, welcome to FOMO Sapiens. Pleasure to be here, Patrick. All right, so I'd like to start the show with the same question every time. And my question for you is, everybody feels a little FOMO sometimes. So what turns you into a FOMO sapiens? You know, Patrick, I, I can't help but feel FOMO about not being fully up to date on the best of data analytics out there. I know that sounds incredibly nerdy. Oh, super, got nerdy Super really quick. nerdy. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I studied engineering, undergrad, operations research, uh, mathematical modeling was at the core of that. And uh, now I'm in the political world and I do my best to make it data-driven and analytical. But I know that uh, the, the methodologies and ways to look at analytics out there are racing ahead. And I... Um, I sometimes wish I could just put my head down and run models rather than try to fix our politics. But here we are. Well, it's interesting you say that because, of course, the minute you inject data and facts into conversations, 
you are able to strip away some of the emotion and that makes things work better. And so it's a great segue into what we're going to talk about today because I read a poll that's from April 2019 from Gallup that said that Americans' number one concern, this is 23% of people, their number one concern was government dysfunction and poor leadership. What is going on out there that has people feeling this way? We have a profound erosion of trust in our institutions right now, and frankly, it's dangerous. Hardly any legislation is making it through Congress. Districts are so gerrymandered, for instance, which means they're drawn to basically uh, keep them safe for a, t- for a particular party, that people show up, they don't have choice in who their politicians are, they see that nothing's happening uh, in Washington, and people are pretty disgruntled. And this is not something new, obviously, and it's not something that's just about one party or the other. And as I said, sort of in the lead up to the show, the point here is not to say that one party is good and one is bad on either side, depending on what your ideology is. It's more about the fact that we have a system that isn't working and people feel it. And that's why you're seeing these kinds of concerns. If you look at polling of Americans right now, regardless of party, many of them are, are agreed that we do have this kind of ineffectiveness of the system and it's not delivering for Americans. So, uh, you know, I think this does not have to be a partisan issue. Uh, It really is about, you know, the the strength of our country and the strength of our democracy. All right. So you are the founder and CEO of an organization called Leadership Now. What is Leadership Now? What are your goals and what are you doing? So Leadership Now Project is a membership organization of principled business leaders who have committed themselves to renewing our democracy. We really believe that renewing our democracy is a project of our generation. And we built an organization that both enables our members to get smart, engage more effectively in politics, and also deploy resources in the most effective way to addressing some of the most underlying challenges to our democracy. So almost like a venture philanthropy uh, side to what we're doing that's grounded in really um, in-depth data analytics about the state of our country and the state of our politics and the money that's flowing into it right now. What are the pillars that you sort of support as an organization? What are the things, if you think about the precepts, the goals, the mission of the organization, what are they? The four principles of leadership now are first, a commitment to protecting democracy while renewing it. Second is facts and science-based policy. Third is building an economy that works for all and future generations. And fourth is embracing diversity as an asset. So we ourselves, as members of the organization, uh, commit to those principles, and we support organizations or candidates that also subscribe to them. Okay, so it's a member-based organization that brings together people from the business world and probably some other worlds as well Mm -hmm. that care about these issues. It's broad in spectrum. You have a diversity of, maybe you can tell us about some of the the types of people that are members and, and the types of organizations you work with. But the idea here is that this is a place where anybody who feels like we need to reform government can come and constructively contribute. Even if you may have disagreement on the issues, you're really focused on on making the wheels of government turn in a way that's much more effective. So I'd love to hear about the kinds of people that are involved and the kinds of organizations that you view as relevant to the kind of work you're doing. Absolutely. You know, we we started a couple of years ago, and what we found early on, and it was myself and uh, 10 other uh, women business school classmates of mine who, in early 2017, said, we see our political system isn't working. We want to do things differently. Uh, The old way of politics clearly isn't solving it. 
and what we did at that early um, early days was really to understand what were people most concerned about in our politics right now and what did they want to do with their time and resources to fix it because politics was not engaging them effectively. Uh, so we tapped in first to Harvard Business School alumni networks uh, where there was really a surge of interest uh, and engagement. And then we moved beyond that to others that were committed uh, and referred from those networks. But where we've ended up is a really amazing group of people that is both from the business community, so we have uh, whether it's finance, tech, um, real estate, you know, entrepreneurs, a really diverse group from the business community. And then uh, we've paired them with organizations and experts from the policy world and leading academics. So we've been able to attract a pretty extraordinary academic advisory group. So this ranges from uh, Professor Michael Porter, who's a well-known strategy professor from Harvard, who's looked at what are the drivers of political dysfunction. Larry Lessig, who's uh, a Harvard law academic, who's known for his work on reform. Uh, David Moss, uh, who's been someone we've really looked to to understand uh, the fundamental needs of a healthy democracy. So we've benefited from all of those inputs and really use that that membership as our fuel. We're not just uh, uh, an organization that's seeking to raise some money from a group of people and then go off and do something with it. The, the membership is the fuel and the purpose of the organization. And now we have collectively both worked to do things like support organizations working against gerrymandering in Pennsylvania to identify candidates who are running for Congress who adhere to our principles and are committed to fixing issues like money in politics um, and lack of competition in the system. And we also, you know, convene the best thinkers uh, so we can think really big about what uh, what this kind of 10-year project of our renewing our democracy uh, can deliver on. You started your career in management consulting, strategy consulting, Bain, then you worked at Dahlberg. These are all places where part of what you do is you map out markets and figure out where the opportunities are in those markets for competition. I'm curious, as you we're thinking about creating leadership now and as you evolve the, the, the organization and grow it, where is the niche? Where As you mentioned, there are some organizations that raise a lot of money and then they back certain organizations. There are others that back candidates. I mean, there is plenty of money flying around in the political spectrum, but you're doing something different. Uh, define that for us. Well, Patrick, that's true. At the same time, what was surprising was to realize that many of my peers and those in my network in their adult life had never been asked to do anything in politics other than donate to a candidate or knock on a door. They'd not been asked to use their mind. They'd not been asked to use their strategic skills, their skills in innovation or as an entrepreneur. So we started with the premise that there was actually strangely almost no competition <laughs> for getting people genuinely deeply involved in strategically looking at what was going on in our politics and devising solutions. And so we now have collectively done really in-depth analysis. Uh, we have a database. We had a data scientist work with us that has built uh, a database of 25,000 organizations that are politically relevant. We took all the IRS data. We took data from the Federal Election Commission, uh, created an algorithm that now lets us pinpoint who are the organizations, what are the resource flows. So we paired that with the amazing um, expertise of academics and now have a pretty unique view on what actually is going on. Daniela, 
like what are the changes that we need to bring innovation into politics and make it work for the modern age? I think it's absolutely true that we've seen far less modernization in politics uh, than we need, especially in the past 50 or so years. I mean, when you did have the civil rights era, you saw a pretty significant transformation of of government and the ability of all Americans to participate. You've seen other major changes and amendments to the Constitution over the years, but actually over the last 50 years, it's been particularly static. Uh, It's ripe for kind of a reboot, and the world around it has changed so dramatically. So even the basic function of Congress, I mean, if you sit in to uh, go into uh, watch the proceedings of Congress, it is like sitting in a board meeting of 60 years ago of lots of organizations, actually. But now it seems completely antiquated and irrelevant, very hierarchical appointees, appointments to committees, long procedures, winding paths to get anything approved. Not to mention we've had in the last decade uh, rulings like End Citizens United that did really transform the way you could bring financial resources into politics. Um, and innovations in technology, which allowed gerrymandering, for instance, which is the practice of districts being drawn by political parties themselves uh, around different communities. The technology got so good that you could draw those in really sophisticated ways to make sure your party um, had the advantage in the elections. Uh, So lots of factors that have made uh, the system weak. The last thing I would say is that we have had such a talent drain in politics. The last 30 years, it was almost like politics skipped a generation. Very few new new people coming into Congress. Um, A general polling would say that Americans think uh, politics is something they'd never want to see their kids go into. So you pair that kind of talent drain with a kind of a system that's being, frankly, a bit manipulated by the existing actors. Uh, and, um, you know, it's very ripe for renewal. And so that's where we're seeing a big opportunity for new ideas. Right now, there's a committee in Congress that's contemplating how should uh, Congress be redesigned. There's a so you're going to allow the people who are dysfunctional to fix this? I mean, maybe that'll work. I don't know. I so I that sounds. I'm going to be skeptical about that one, right? It's the idea is sort of like letting the inmates run the prison. I, I'm not using that particular analogy to imply anything, but you know my point. Uh, well, let me give you a counter. Work? Yeah, okay, let yeah, me give me, you a counter on that, which is those who are leading it. So the chair of that committee, Derek Kilmer. Is only a couple, um, I think he's on his third term. Ex-McKinsey consultant, came from the organizational world, young, asking like, oh my God, how do we make this work differently? And a lot of the those who are most active in this committee are those who've been in one or two terms. Okay. They're, they're people like, um, members of Congress, like the ones that we identified last cycle and supported who came from the business world, nonprofit world, came from, were veterans, uh, were doctors, and they're new to Congress and saying this is not sustainable. So I do have some hope for this committee, but it'll only work if there's an outside constituency that's driving for change. And that's part of the role that we can play is that outside constituency, not only for these mechanical changes to Congress, but also for these big state and federal level changes on things like gerrymandering, campaign finance, ranked choice voting, which we can touch on, uh, which was adopted at in Maine, and Patrick, uh, uh, you know a fair bit about Anybody who's listened to the show knows that I'm from Maine. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so so there, there's, um, in some ways, what we are doing is building 
a new constituency for fixing our democracy, not the same old lobby groups, not the um, existing grassroots groups who are good and have good goals, but the sway and influence in the system uh, right now is is really narrow um, and needs new voices like the ones we're bringing to the table. Okay, so let's take a couple topics and get get deep into them. Let's get into gerrymandering and then let's talk about ranked choice voting, which is something that, that I think is really interesting in terms of thinking about our country as a lab- laboratory for democracy. So um, gerrymandering, how do we fix it? Uh, here's the good news on gerrymandering. We've seen a wave of independent redistricting commissions put in place. In some cases, that's because there were activists on the ground who put ballot initiatives on the ballot. So in 2018, Michigan, for instance, led by an extraordinary young woman, Katie Fahey, started a a movement in the state with no resources, just saying this is unfair. Uh, And it led ultimately to putting uh, an independent redistricting commission, so a bipartisan commission on the ballot that was passed by the majority of the voters. Actually, in 2018, there were kind of different types of reform efforts on the ballot in multiple states. And of the ones we tracked, 19 out of 20 passed. So those were things. people want these things. Yeah, they they were things like transparency of campaign finances, independent redistricting commissions, uh, felon reenfranchisement in Florida. Um, These passed with not just purely partisan uh, support. So gerrymandering, uh, independent redistricting commissions are often the, the best path. Um, are often the path that's uh, uh, most kind of agreed to be effective. We also see uh, legislation that's taken up in state legislatures um, for other um, kind of independent analysis of the districts to inform uh, redistricting. So this is really important. The census is coming up in 2020. Districts are going to be drawn again. Uh, We, you know, we would be best off if every state in the union had independent redistricting uh, commissions, which is part of the reason we haven't only looked at state level efforts. If you had federal legislation that required independent commissions uh, across the country, we would know for sure that uh, the lines for congressional districts uh, and for state legislative districts were drawn in a way that was fair and competitive. The thing about this is so critical is that competition makes everybody better. And this is what gerrymandering works against. It's the idea that when you have a safe seat, you don't have to work for those votes. You know, basically, that you're going to be reelected. And so by creating a a competitive marketplace of ideas and talent, everybody wins. And and I think that's why gerrymandering has been so difficult is that you get away from that, because the minute you don't have to compromise or try to win other people's votes, uh, the system starts to break away and people can be very rigid in what they're doing and they stop representing all of their constituents. They represent that 51% or whatever that guarantees are probably 60, 70% in the most gerrymandered districts that's going to make sure that they're reelected. So that's a, that, that is a, an area where I think reform will be incredibly impactful. And let's talk about ranked choice voting. So ranked choice voting basically is a process whereby when you vote, say you're voting for senator, you actually say, this is my first, second, third choice, all the way down for as many candidates as they are. And then once the votes are tabulated, if the first place person fails to get 50%, the bottom vote getter is eliminated and their votes are redistributed based on this, the, the, the other preference of their voters. So say I voted for the last place person and my second choice was you know candidate X. 
my vote is then given to candidate X and everybody is recalculated. So it's a way of basically making sure there are no spoilers and at the same time giving the winner a mandate. So you actually get somebody over 50% before they are elected. So that is the, the way that it all works. Why is this something that you think is important? Ranked choice voting is, has a variety of benefits for the system. The first thing is it opens things up and allows more competition. If you're someone who's a little bit of a riskier candidate, the voter now doesn't feel concerned that their vote will be wasted for, in voting for you. The second thing it does that's really interesting is it seems to increase civility in the political space because if you're not fighting for someone's first choice, you're trying to get them get to be their second choice. So if you spend your time attacking the other candidate, you're less likely to get a supporter of that candidate to put you a second choice. They might just not rank at all. They'll choose the other one. So what you, the evidence so far seems to suggest that it creates more civility and opens things up for new candidates. And it reduces the need for uh, runoff elections, where you have to send everyone back to the ballot box if you don't reach more than 50% of the vote, which is what happens in some states. Uh, so all of those benefits have led ranked choice voting uh, to become increasingly popular among those who are trying to reform our electoral system. So Maine pa- passed ranked choice voting by ballot uh, in 2018 by through a ballot initiative. And part of the reason that Maine was so early on this is Maine has a history of independent candidates. And so rarely does the winner of the election for governor or even a Senate or congressional race get more than 50 percent of the vote. And there's a constant concern about spoilers or did the right person get it. And uh, so so an extraordinary effort occurred in Maine, led by a group of activists and advocates, uh, including uh, Karen McCormick, Kyle Bailey, um, just kind of the unsung heroes of ranked choice voting who said this is unacceptable and we need to to change the voting approach in Maine and went through an extraordinary process to get it on the ballot where pushed back by their state legislature. It was reversed and got it on the ballot again. I I suggest anyone who's interested in this topic, look at rcvfilm.com, which uh, tells the story of this extraordinary effort. But it shows how much people want to have the ability to influence elections. You know, I mean, the fact that an entire state could mobilize in the middle of dead winter to pass a ballot on this issue uh, is so inspiring because what we have right now is people don't even bother showing up to vote. Uh, and this uh, is a chance to give people real choice. So we're seeing ranked choice voting uh, bills now across the country um, in cities and states. Uh, one thing that's interesting is you hear one of the uh, uh, biggest cri- critics of ranked choice voting you'll find in secretaries of state who run the uh, voting process and they say this is too difficult, people won't understand, etc. I mean... Australia as an entire country has ranked choice voting for its presidential election. I mean, somehow they've survived <laughs> that process. So and they had 27 years of nonstop economic growth, by the way. Yeah, so, I mean, it's just kind I mean, of extraordinary. Correlation doesn't mean causation. Yeah, but. it's extraordinary to suggest. And, and interestingly, there's now a bit of a sense that ranked choice voting might be better for Democrats and Republicans because there was one election where it benefited. But there's absolutely no evidence. You see lots of examples where either party mm-hmm. wins from this. And Australia just had its ranked choice voting national election and it was a pretty conservative outcome. So I I don't think there's any um, 
partisanship, what it does do is that it makes the traditional political parties have to compete more. It yes. does open, anything up, open things up more for independents or for if it's in primaries, uh, it can open things up for candidates within a party that might not have been competitive. Uh, and that, I think, is, is really exciting and exactly what we need. And actually, you know, on this topic of competition, Catherine Gell and Michael Porter, uh, who Michael Porter's uh, Harvard Business School professor who studied competition in industries, he you know, for decades and decades and built uh, his strategy framework around studying competition in industries have now applied that to the political system. And their assessment was that we have essentially a failing duopoly of political parties. And addressing that requires us to do things like use ranked choice voting, address gerrymandering, address address a concentration of money in politics, uh, to solve that problem, so that's something one of that's one of the academic inputs we've really taken into consideration as we've identified where our members should put their time and money. And I will say that the case that they wrote, which you can find online, I couldn't put it down. It's one of the best things that I've read about politics probably ever. And I love that they've taken this very strategic approach to something that sometimes we don't think about that way, but it is uh, it is a real uh, contribution to the canon and uh, is definitely worth a read. Daniela, why should people in the business world care about all of these topics? Why not just keep your head down, stay out of politics, and just and, and just you know, focus on the business that you're running? Patrick, a couple of reasons why the functioning of our government is so important to business and to business people. First is that over the long term, I think all the evidence is that a well-governed country that is effective at education, educating its population that builds strong public infrastructure, uh, where its legislature can make decisions that are legitimate with the people, will have a stronger basis for economic growth and social cohesion. That's a long-term game. In the short term, there's a somewhat different reason why I think this is really important for business people to pay attention to. Because business is already an actor in politics. The reality is that many companies already lobby, their corporate PACs support candidates, and the view on politics that often is happening in the business world is relatively narrow. The questions that a company may ask is, does this candidate support a particular legislation I like? Uh, And that's risky. Uh, I think we will find as more business people become aware of the importance of of a government that's effective and that can make decisions, that they'll want their companies to also support candidates that are committed to the basic functioning of our government being strong. All of the issues we've talked today, maximizing voter turnout, having competitive uh, elections, addressing money in politics. So I think awareness of the business community, of how politics works, and uh, really starting to rethink the interaction between uh, business and politics is is something that is already happening and uh, we're going to need more of in the years ahead. Daniela, what does success look like? Like you, you come back to FOMO Sapiens in 10 years. What are the metrics you're tracing? How do you know you made it? A couple of things. Uh, first, that we see dramatically higher participation in the system. You know, voter turnout goes up. We see many more candidates uh, and individuals willing to throw their hat in the ring and run for office. 
We see elections where there is genuine choice uh, between candidates. And we see a restoration of the norms of politics really respecting the outcomes of the democratic process. Because what we're seeing right now, which is scary, is that all of these things we've been talking about, whether it's gerrymandering, we didn't talk as much about money in politics, but I think that's a really key piece of the picture as well, are essentially manipulations to the system to direct outcomes for particular interests. And that can be interests of the parties or um, outside groups, et cetera. Um, And until we can change the rules of the game, but we also have, it has to be kind of unacceptable to play that way. Uh, And and so that kind of rebuilding of faith in the system, uh, getting leaders into politics that people genuinely trust are representing their interests has to be a part of the picture here. You just can't change the rules of the game. You need principled leaders to be part of changing those rules and actually to sustain it. So that's the other pillar of this, that this isn't a mechanical set of changes alone. It's empowering those who will make changes to the system a first priority and who will exercise um, principled, uh, grounded leadership as part of it. Daniela, this is the show about finding the power to choose what you actually want in business and life, and I guess politics, and the courage to miss out on the rest. you making decisions all the time. What's your advice about making decisions and then sticking with them? There's a Japanese saying, ikigai, which is about finding your purpose mm-hmm. in the world, and it, it's four pillars. What do you uh, bring to the world? What does the world need for you? What do you love doing, and how can you make sure you have the you get paid to do it, basically. There's some financial basis. And I think right now, the world needs many of us to focus on two of those pillars. What does the world need from you? And what can you bring uniquely to solving that? And so I've grounded a lot of my decisions in those pillars. We can't afford um, people staying on the sidelines who have the skills to solve the problems we have. As we see from your example or from many examples of of principal business leaders who've gone into government, if you can bring those skills into a place where there is maybe a lack of strategic thinking or innovation, you can have an outsized impact. So it's a very very important way to look at the world. At the same time, obviously, uh, you cannot have it all. And so as you build Leadership Now Project and, and work on all these things, what are you missing out on? Well, the balance that I'm always striking, I have a seven-year-old and 12-year-old daughters. (laughs) And as far as I can tell, seven and 12 are like the perfect ages. They're just amazing in how they're seeing the world and all the things that they're doing. And I would love to replicate myself and be with them at every moment as they kind of learn about the world and explore it and and be part of it now in a way that uh, that's not entirely possible while at the same time building a uh, political network dedicated to change. But all of that said, I feel like both of those experiences of being a parent, of having amazing daughters, and of building this extraordinary group of people uh, committed to political change, uh, I'm enriched deeply from each of them and the interactions within them. All right, finally, where can listeners find out more about you and about Leadership Now Project? Uh, well, our website, leadershipnowproject.org, uh, uh, both gives an overview of what we 
prioritize. If you look at the news side, you'll see some of uh, the way we've been publicly talking about these issues. And you can sign up for our newsletter on the website as well and stay up to date kind of every month on what are the issues in politics that really matter when there is a lot of noise. How about Twitter? And on Twitter, at LeadershipNP. Nice. The Twitter is very good. I follow, so everybody should check it out. <laughs> All right, Daniela Belueres, thanks for stopping by. Thanks, Patrick. FOMO. And now it's time for the FOMO moment of the show, which is the time when I talk about FOMO and its role in pop culture or tell you about something that's giving me FOMO. At least 11 people have died this climbing season on Mount Everest. The reasons? Overcrowding and selfies. The New York Times reports that too many climbers are making the ascent and that fly-by-night tour operators are taking mere amateurs up the mountain. At the same time, so many people are taking selfies at the top that is creating traffic jams. All of this puts climbers of all skill levels in grave physical danger. Because at an altitude of 29,000 feet, there is no room for error. Listen, selfies are great, but not when they put you or someone else at risk. So I have a recommendation for the Nepalese authorities. Make Everest a selfie-free zone by banning smartphones and cameras from the mountain. What might sound like a little bit of a drastic decision does have a major side benefit. Climbers can spend their time at the top taking in the view without being distracted by their cameras. FOMO. If you have an idea for the FOMO moment of the show, or if you have a question or comment, reach out to me at letsconnectatpatrickmcginnis.com or send me a tweet at PJ McGinnis. Also, you can take the official FOMO sapiens diagnostic at patrickmcginnis.com slash FOMO quiz and find out if you're a FOMO sapiens. FOMO Sapiens is part of the HBR Presents FOMO. Network. The show is produced by AW360 and recorded FOMO. in New York City. Theme music is by Mike McGinnis. FOMO. If you like today's show, please be sure to rate it and recommend it to your friends. FOMO. And as always, you can find me at patrickmcginnis.com. You can also take the official FOMO diagnostic at patrickmcginnis.com slash FOMO-quiz to find out if you're a FOMO Sapiens. FOMO. FOMO.